At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Howdy everybody, Ron Spomer back with another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors, a podcast in which I read old magazine articles that I've written over the long, long years. And today we have one that is called Hell's Canyon Muleys, and this is from Rifle Magazine, and the year should be on here someplace. Let's see it. Oh, it looks like July, August, 1995. So for some of us, that was just the other day. (laughs) But for others, it was a long time ago. Let's just dive right in and see what hunting mule deer was like back in that day in Hell's Canyon. Hell's Canyon Muleys by Ron Spomer. I wasn't eager to step out of the truck and begin the day's hunt because of the rain and the extension ladder. Actually, the former was tapering off, but the latter, pardon the pun, we didn't have at all. And it looked as if we'd need at least a 30-foot ladder to climb the country sprawling before us like a geologic train wreck. Welcome to Mule Deer Country in Hell. In case you've never been there, it's a series of stair-step ledges. Dry, rocky, mostly up and down, and the deepest gorge in North America. Nearly 8,000 feet, compared to 5,630 feet in the Grand Canyon. This is Hell's Canyon on the Idaho-Oregon border. If ever there were a piece of real estate rugged enough to protect a mule deer buck from early harvest, this is it. If you had a big enough jet boat, you could motor into it a few dozen miles via the Snake River, but then you'd still have to beach the boat and climb 5,000 feet to the deer. Alternatively, you could grind up a four-wheel drive forest service trail to the rim from the east side and climb down 2,000 feet. Either way, the thought of packing an animal out will argue strongly against shooting it. 
That's why Chris Yeoman and I had opted to hunt River Mountain Ranch, a sprawling private holding that borders the rim of the canyon and provides the most reasonable access anyone without wings is likely to find. Manager Shannon Lindsay will even provide a guide to show you around and to pack out the protein. At the end of a hard day, the home-cooked meals, hot tub, and deep mattresses at the bunkhouse fit a man's tired frame perfectly. That's as close to heaven as Hell's Canyon gets. On the first morning, Chris had seen lots of does and a dozen bucks. There were five good ones bedded under a lone ponderosa, projecting above the rim of the canyon, but no booners. Roughly interpreted, they were not big enough to make the Boone and Crockett book, and since he traveled 1,300 miles, and this was the first day of his hunt, he wasn't about to pull the trigger. I had glassed a couple of medium-sized bucks, a line of does, two medium white tails, and a tempting 5x5 muley walking on the edge of the rim. Actually, I wasn't quite sure if I were hunting mule deer or white tails. River Mountain Ranch, you see, has both in good numbers and good sizes. While scouting in September, I'd seen and photographed four white tails that would have gross scored in the 150s. Some of the ranch hands, as well as Shannon and his wife Kim, had reported seeing a monster muley that would easily make Boone and Crockett, plus a whitetail buck that dwarfed the ones that I described. While the success of my annual hunting season doesn't hinge on whether I kill a record book head, that lure is always there, and a man is entitled to his dreams. So, I always begin my hunts with high hopes with determination and resolve to resist the good bucks for at least the first day or two. Otherwise, a hunt on River Mountain Ranch would be over the first morning, and there's just too much fascinating country to explore to let that happen. The geology of the place is unusual. Supposedly, the west edge of Idaho was once splashed by the Pacific Ocean. This was a few years before I was born before dinosaurs. Well, heck, probably before life itself. Offshore islands arose and gradually plate tectonics brought the two together in a crumpling action. The result is a high mountain range, the Seven Devils, stuck to the west edge of central Idaho, tending north-south with significant beds of limestone mixed in with volcanic basalt. That's important most central Idaho mountain ranges are granite, a poor substrate for trace minerals and forage production. On the limestone of the Seven Devils, antlered game eats better and grows larger masses of external bone. The area has produced the second greatest number of Boone and Crockett mule deer heads registered from Idaho. The fly in the ointment is the landscape. It isn't just mountainous, it's steeply mountainous and eroded. The highest peaks, about 9,000 feet, have been cracked and gouged by glaciers. The rest of the slopes have been broken, scoured, and cut by freezing and flowing water, most especially the Snake River, which rasps along the west edge of the range en route to its inevitable meeting with the Salmon, Clearwater, and Columbia Rivers to the north. From the flat pastures on River Mountain Ranch above the canyon, 
The land plummets about 5,000 feet in a horizontal distance of just two miles, creating thousands of nooks and crannies in which deer hide and often demanding long-range shooting across windy gaps at steep angles. It's both a hunting and shooting challenge. Having hunted this terrain before, I knew prior to the 1994 trip which conditions were. Yet I had difficulty choosing a rifle. I knew I'd be using something in the 270 Winchester to 300 Winchester Magnum range for maximum long-range performance, but beyond that, I was stuck. My choices were a Browning A-Bolt stainless stalker with Boss in 300 Winchester Magnum with a 24-inch barrel and a Bausch & Laum 3-9 Elite 3000 scope or a Savage M116 FSAK stainless synthetic with fluted 22-inch barrel and on-off muzzle brake in 270 Winchester with a Simmons 3.5-10X whitetail classic scope, or my old Winchester Model 70 featherweight in 30-06, which was still wearing its dependable 2.5-8X loophole Vari-X3 scope. The sentimental favorite was the Model 70. I had it shooting sub-minute of angle, three-shot groups at 100 yards with 125-grain Barnes X bullets that chronographed at 3,150 feet per second thanks to 54 grains of Hodgson H335 powder. Normally, a 125-grain slug in 30 caliber would be too short and fat for downrange efficiency, but because copper is lighter than lead and X bullets are 100% copper, they are longer than traditional lead core bullets. According to the Barnes Reloading Manual Number 1, the 125 grain X bullet has a ballistics coefficient of 351, not far behind the 150 grain Nosler partition with a 0.387 BC. Because X bullets routinely retain 90 to 98% weight after striking game, I figured I'd get 150 grain performance out of that 125 grain pill traveling a little faster for optimum trajectory. Anyway, I was anxious to try it, and since the featherweight at 7 pounds 10 ounces with the scope and mounts is relatively light and easy to carry, it argued for a trip to River Mountain Ranch. The Browning A-Bolt in 300 Winchester Magnum had the edge in ultimate cross-canyon performance, but at 8 pounds 8 ounces and slightly muzzle-heavy, it doesn't carry as conveniently as the Winchester. It's a subjective judgment, but the feel of a hunting rifle means a lot to me, and it weighs heavily in my choosing. Considering all the climbing and the cliff balancing I'd be doing on that hunt, I chose to leave the Browning at home. Now the Savage was a close second with a 22-inch fluted barrel. It should have weighed considerably less than the Browning, but the barrel is a heavy contour and the Model 110 action is beefy. The gun with sleek Conatrol two-piece basin rings and Simmons scope pushed the scales to within two ounces of the Browning. Yet because of the shorter barrel, it does feel slightly more responsive and I had yet to take game with it, so I opted to pack it along as well. I hadn't had time to work up hand loads for it, but it threw three 130 grain Remington factory loads into 1.25 inches at 100 yards. The trigger was adjusted to three pounds. 
We arrived a day early and spent it scouting. Since I knew the ranch from previous visits, I positioned Chris along one traditional mule deer drainage while I scurried down another where a monster muley buck was rumored to be loafing away the final days of early autumn. Despite the northern latitude of Hell's Canyon, it has a relatively mild and very dry climate. On south-facing slopes, October days can climb into the 80s, echoing late summer on the plains. Pockets of shrubs still cling to their colorful foliage. Bunch grasses are yellow, rock slides gray, brown, and black. Groves of mature pines shelter north-facing slopes and draws. Most mule deer bucks, at least before the shooting starts, bed in bachelor bands right out in the open on the south slopes. It's a glassing game. By mid-morning, via a combination of hiking to various overlooks and glassing systematically with first an 8x42 and loam, then an Icon 16x47 spotting scope to assess antlers, I located several average bucks, but nothing to call the taxidermist about. Chris had similar luck, but he was so taken in by the novel scenery, I wondered how much hard-looking he did actually accomplish. Probably more than me, he's a real workhorse. That evening, I put Chris where he could watch a finger of woods out of which three big whitetails had been emerging to forage for the previous month or so. I dropped a thousand or so feet to check a cloistered side draw, where I suspected one of the big muleys might be hiding. Again, lots of medium-sized heads, but nothing outstanding. Chris caught a glimpse of a high-racked 4x4 whitetail with a drop tine that I'd been seeing regularly, but each time it tried to enter the feed field, a truck drove past, spooking it back into the shadows. Unfortunately, that buck had elected to headquarter right on the edge of River Mountain Ranch property, and an outfitter working the neighboring property seemed to be harassing it on a regular basis. We never saw it again. Rain fell our second night in camp. One other hunter had caught up with a big non-typical muley that pushed 175 BNC points on the second morning, and his guide, Steve Gallus, directed us to the honey hole, indicating that there was a bigger one in there, but we didn't see it. The area on a topographical map had more lines than a tuna net. We arrived at the jumping off point just as the rain lit up. It was my daughter's fourth birthday and I wanted to leave by mid-afternoon at the latest to help celebrate her day and present her with her first bicycle that evening. Twenty years earlier, you couldn't have convinced me I'd ever abandon a trophy deer hunt to attend a kid's birthday party, but that was before I had one of my own. Right after Sarah's party, I'd begin driving to a pronghorn hunt in Montana. My trophy aspirations were downgrading considerably. Since this would be my last day to hunt in Idaho, I was now looking for a prime buck, something that would tastefully grace a dinner table. Fog rolled slowly over the peaks and drifted up from the valleys. We spotted elk moving over the divides and slipping into dark timber. Then, at the gate where we were to park, I glimpsed two wide-racked mule deer crest a distant saddle and drop over. We piled out with our optical gear. We plopped down on the slope and started the visual search, trying to pinch the incredible space into a series of grids that we could cover one by one. It wasn't easy. Distant slopes too far away for effective glassing kept drawing my attention. They looked positively ripe for game. 
Yet I realized if I didn't pay attention to the closer country, deer could slip away unseen. At the same time, if I didn't watch the skyline, something big could cross over and be gone in an instant. What a dilemma. Because the rain had quit, I'd shouldered the Model 70, leaving the stainless Savage 270 Winchester in the truck. I remained so ambivalent about which rifle to use that I'd been alternating them. Chris had been working with his 7mm Remington Magnum Browning A-bolt the entire hunt. It wore a big loophole 3.5-10 Very X3 with 50mm objective lens. Chris likes a big bright view and he depends on it for sniping Plains Whitetails at dusk back in South Dakota where he also guides. His rig wore a Harris bipod for the ultimate in steady aiming. I'd slipped around the ridge and was glassing the newly exposed basin, a combination of north-south pines and south-slope grass, when I heard rocks rattle. I swung my binocular toward the sound and about fell over when three dark muleys loomed like battleships in the glass. I was practically on top of them. How I'd managed not to spook them, I still don't know, for I was standing naked to the universe and there was nowhere to hide. I merely stood still and watched as they flicked their long ears, glanced my way, and resumed browsing down slope. Eventually, I located eight amid the grass, rocks, and scattered shrubs, the farthest of which was a good buck with dark antlers exceeding or extending slightly past his ear tips. At first glance, my heart did a double time. He was certainly no record book buck, but he looked impressive, heavy, and even though it was only the 12th of October and a month early for the rut, he was nosing a doe and giving her the old low neck stretch. Chris must have seen my unusual position and interpreted it correctly because he came over at a crouch. We agreed the larger buck had a 25 inch spread, give or take an inch. That was all the encouragement I needed. I bolted around into the chamber, dropped prone, held low to compensate for the steep angle, and took the 200-yard shot. The deer jumped forward and trotted after the doe as the entire herd lined toward us on a trail below the rim rock. He was dead but didn't know it. I gave him another round whereupon he rolled over and down, 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 much farther than he was supposed to. He slipped between two outcrops and disappeared. It took a good five minutes to clamber down to him. While we were admiring him, taking pictures and talking, his twin leaped from a tiny pocket of shrubs less than 40 yards away and bounded over the ridge. Well, that first X-bullet had punched just in front of the front shoulder, traveled the length of the breast and exited. The second took a more traditional broadside route through the ribs. Even though we were within 400 yards of the truck, we burned most of an hour carrying, carrying him out in pieces. Well, I wish I hadn't shot him, I confessed as we stood blowing by the truck. I was suffering the usual withdrawal symptoms. Now I'm done. It's the end of the hunt. Chris did find the big buck. He said it would have gone 180 as a typical but he had no antlers to prove it. Chris had the buck dead to rights at less than 200 yards, but the muley was standing on a narrow point that jutted out above a deep, big drop that would have busted his rack all to pieces when he fell. I called Shannon in Whitebird, Idaho upon my return from Montana later. Another hunter had also seen the big muley, but he hadn't gotten it either. In other words, it's still out there. I think I'll go hunting in hell this fall.
Well, you know, for hell, Hell's Canyon is can be pretty heavenly experience. But I'm going to get Betsy in here because she knows Hell's Canyon quite well. She's taken the easy route through it, though. It's not an easy route <laughs> to kayak it. She kayaked Hell's Canyon. She's kayaked a lot of rivers across the West. No, I kayaked Hell's Canyon a lot. You did it a lot, oh. yeah. That was before I came onto the scene, so I didn't have to worry about her cracking up. But she almost drowned in there a few times from what I've heard. Did you see any big mule deer? I wasn't even looking for mule deer. <laughs> well, I was well, thinking you... about air breathing. Well, what do you do in those kayaks <laughs> if you're not looking at the scenery? Well, now I would. You would now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just hearing you uh, read that story makes me want to go down Hell's Canyon, actually, and, and hunt. Although, I'd be... Uh, I'm not sure you want to climb in and out of there anymore. No. Well, well, since it's 25 years later... Yeah. Do you think you could still do that? Um, I could do it very slowly. Yeah. Yeah, I could do it. You know, it's not a lot steeper than where I was just whitetail hunting up north. Uh, it's just farther to the bottom. <laughs> you know, much of Idaho, folks, is really steep. I used to invite friends out to hunt, and I said, look, guys, you come on out here, and, and we'll show you some stunning country and probably get you into some mule deer or elk or whatever we're after, but you have got to be prepared for the steepest terrain you've probably ever hunted. And I don't know that I've ever seen steeper country consistently than much of most of Idaho, especially yeah, the wilderness areas. Yeah, it's steep. You have to be in good shape. In fact, I hope where we're going hunting tomorrow isn't as steep as I think it might be. <laughs> yeah, I think tomorrow is going to be a little easier than Hell's Canyon. We're going to be in some of the more rolling sagebrush hills around here. So I think we'll have a better chance at it. But I don't know if we're going to see any bigger bucks. Although a friend of mine in town said a friend of his shot a real big, like 190 mule deer on he opening took day. My mule deer? He shot your mule deer and mine both at the same time. So <laughs> would you, what kind of a rifle would you take to Hell's Canyon now? Because things have changed. Yeah, really. That's uh, interested me when I was reading all that. I'd forgotten all about that Savage and that Browning with the boss on the end of it. I remember... When the boss came out, it was called the Ballistic Optimizing Shooting System, and it was just a an adjustable weight that was on the uh, end of the barrel, screwed in on the muzzle. And by turning it in and out, you could tune the balance of the rifle in the, in the harmonics and uh, dial it in for more accuracy. It was sort of a clumsy-looking thing, but it did the trick. I mean, you could cut your accuracy, you, you double your accuracy, really, if you... It tuned it just right. Mm -hmm. um, it lasted for a few years, but then most people you know, just went by the wayside like so many of these things do. But uh, man, that was effective rifle. But it was a little bit long and heavy. That added a lot of weight to the end of it. So what would you take now? Hmm, good question. You know, there are just many, many good options. Obviously, that 270 is still good. 30-06 shoots a lot flatter than most people think or give it credit for. But I think these days... Probably one of the 6.5s, that .264 diameter bullet in some of the longer, heavier sizes is really an advantage for wind deflection. Minimizes that wind drift, and obviously it can be pretty windy in that canyon country. Absolutely. 
yeah, you get the cross canyon winds, you get uplifts and downdrafts. So, yeah, having a sleek, fast bullet would really be uh, useful. So I'm thinking uh, 6.5 PRC or even the 6.5 300 Weatherby, maybe even the 26 Nosler. Ooh, those guys are smoking like 3,200 to 3,300 feet per second with 142 or 45 grain bullet in that range. That's shooting fl extremely flat and should resist the wind deflection. You, the shot was 200 yards, right? Which Piece would, of cake. I know it was a piece of cake, but back then, 200 yards, 400 yards. Yeah, I know even back then before rangefinders came in, you know, that's the biggest difference is laser rangefinders. Okay. Yeah, because that tells you exactly. And they also generally will compensate for the angle because back then we had to guess, was the angle steep enough that it's going to change your impact? You get too steep of an angle and your bullet strikes higher than it normally would, so you have to aim a little bit lower. But it really doesn't matter too much until you're getting out to about a 30-degree slope and more than 200 yards away. Otherwise, you really don't have to worry about it on a game animal. But those are some of the things we just had to keep in mind when we shot. And typically, I would just aim low on the brisket for a 200 to 300-yard shot. And I rarely took anything over that. I shot a few mountain animals at... 400 yards but i think my longest shot was probably 450 on any mountain game but these days you've got the the ballistics calculators and you can save your charts take them with you a lot of guys will use the phone apps and do things in the field i don't like to be messing around with a battery powered yeah. phone app in the field you don't even like to mess around with apps when you have at yeah, home. i agree yeah i just um, so i'm kind of primitive i want to be out there stalking the game and enjoying the the hunt and not thinking about computers and digital this and that but that's just me but i noticed a, a big change in the scopes that i was reporting on that's right you know i still i'm not crazy about really huge powerful scopes just because of the size and weight and i really can't say that i ever missed anything because i only had a two to eight or three to ten scope um, i think scopes these days are are wonderful instruments with a lot of advancements we didn't have back then that can make long-range shots a lot easier but again if you're a good stalker you really don't need to take those long shots so why carry around a bigger heavier scope that's my philosophy well and we differ on that because i have trouble with my vision in my right eye so i like a bigger scope and we're actually having this discussion yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> right but and, you know, and I'm glad that you bring that to my attention because I just assume because I work well with those lower powered scopes with the smaller objectives that this should work for everybody. But I've got to realize that not everyone has the same vision. So someone who has a little more compromised visual acuity or they're maybe getting cataracts and they don't see as brightly as they used to, uh, whatever the reason, if you honestly assess that you need a brighter scope by golly you should carry one they're not that much heavier so yeah yeah and we were talking about that and you know you said well this one's a half pound heavier and i'm thinking but i can see this. <laughs> yeah who cares about a half pound i can at least see something to shoot it <laughs> anyway yeah well those are good points 
Well, that uh, is what mule deer hunting was like back in 1994. In that was on the border between Idaho and uh, Oregon in Hell's Canyon. If you've never seen it, by golly, I would suggest you get out there because it really is a tortured landscape. It's just amazingly broad and steep and rocky. And, and these days it also has a strong population of really, really big, big horns. If they haven't, again, died off from a disease like so often happens. But about that time, shortly after that, they introduced them and they really took off and they were just putting out some huge rams. And I suspect the mule deer bucks are still there in good numbers and good sizes because there are just so many hiding places and they're so hard to get to. And that's what it takes to grow a really big mule deer. It has to have escape cover so that it can live for probably seven years. Mule deer bucks really don't reach their prime and produce their biggest antlers until they're seven. At five, they're starting to get pretty darn good, but most of them get harvested or shot by the time they're four years old when there's good hunting pressure. So get into a wilderness area or someplace like Hell's Canyon that's just really hard to get into and out of, and it increases your chances for finding one of the big old guys. And, uh, I don't think I'm going to run down there this weekend to check it out myself, but some younger guys out there with legs and lungs could probably give it a try. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in again to uh, Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. I invite you to check out our website, Ron Spomer Outdoors. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel. And now we are also on Patreon, so check out the Patreon app, and you can join the Ron Spomer Outdoors community there. We'd love to have you, and you can help us uh, decide what sort of topics to cover in the future, and we'll bring you more videos, podcasts, and writings as quickly as we can. Reminding you all, of course, to hunt honest and shoot straight. has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hogs cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.